Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. Sometimes a person gets a vision, has a passion to make something happen, and just flat out won't let it not happen. In 2014, September 2014, my wife Kay and I were visiting England. We're on a Rotary Friendship Exchange, which is a program where you have a host family in a town, part of a Rotary Club, and they put you up for about three to four days. And during that time, you have some time that's that family's up to that family's discretion as to what you do. Well, they had heard that we were bird watchers, and so they got a hold of a fellow named David Waters. David is one of those people who has a passion. He has undertaken to reintroduce uh, a species that was once native to England, Great Britain, uh, that became extirpated, uh, the great bustard. Great bustards are this gigantic bird. They're the heaviest flying bird in the world, and they were hunted to extirpation in England as trophies for noblemen and other trophy hunters' uh, trophy rooms. Uh, that's because they are big and spectacular, and the males in breeding season have this weird mustache sort of thing uh, that grows out of the side of their head, and they are just bizarre-looking creatures uh, and are really freaking cool. And so David tried to got the idea that they could be introduced and when we visited was making modest gains in that regard he'd been getting uh, eggs and chicks from Russia and you can imagine the stories of that uh, in the late 1990s early 2000s going to Russia getting eggs uh, hatching those eggs bringing chicks back to England uh, it you know this is, this is Russia. This is Siberia. It's crazy. Anyway, a great story. And we got to visit him at his home. And he had two uh, injured and unreleasable great busters, a male and a female, living in a, in a large pen at his home. And he was trying to breed those birds there and had them really as pets uh, and had reintroduced a number of birds into the Plains area in Salisbury, which is where uh, Stonehenge is. So David took us out and we looked over these plains where you could see Stonehenge in the distance and saw great bustards uh, on the plain there. It was a really cool experience. Well, I never thought too much about that again until recently when a a fellow from Great Britain reached out to me and had an idea of someone in England that I might have as a, a guest on the show. Well, that will be uh, next episode that you hear from those people. Uh, but in the interim, I said, well, if I can reach out to England, why not reach out to David Waters? He's got a great story to tell. And I reached out to him, and sure enough, he's more than willing to come on the show and talk about his project, and that's what we talk about today. So today you'll get to hear about the reintroduction of great bustards to England uh, with David Waters. Help me welcome David to the Bird Banner Podcast. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for talking with me today. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. I, I fondly remember my visit when Kay and I uh, came by. We were on a Rotary Friendship Exchange, and we came by your home and, and saw your two uh, domesticated, injured, unreleasable bustards in a little pet, or actually a pretty big pen in your backyard. And we got out and saw some of the birds on the plane. That was really quite an experience. You've been doing this for a while, this Great Bustard Reintroduction Project. Tell me about how did it get started, and, and how's it gone? The story as to how I sort of got started on bustards goes right back to um, my early early teens. 
Um, I've always had an interest in wildlife. I think all the early photographs of me, a pair of binoculars around my neck, and that was something, you know, I sort of inherited from my father. My parents also, they, they bought me a subscription to a magazine called The World of Wildlife. And it you know, used to come every month and just land on the, on the doorstep. And well, as you can imagine, the world of wildlife. Big and world. it pretty much centred on all the stories to do with the world's most exotic, most spectacular, most interesting wildlife. And I felt as a, you know, as, as a child, I was just a little bit miffed that, we lived in a super rural area, but we had sort of blackbirds and rabbits and none of this soup, none of the birds of paradise or the, the giant condors or the huge crocodiles or the big cats or anything like that. And yeah, all right, wrongly now, I'd say, but I thought British wildlife was a bit dull compared with this hand-picked selection from the rest of the world. Sure. And then I learned about the great mustard. Um, now I've lived virtually all my life in Wiltshire, um, and I was aware that there was this bird, the great bustard, that was our sort of county bird. It was on top of the coat of arms, and, and organisations such as like the Scouts, the Girl Guides, um, and the Army Cadets, and various sort of county organisations used it as their badge. And, and it, yeah, as a small boy, bustard's a pretty good word, isn't it? It's nearly rude. It's a good word to shout about quite a lot, sure. you know. Um, and then I learned it was the heaviest flying bird in the world. And I, I, I felt, I suppose you'd best describe it as really an anger that we used to have this big spectacular wildlife. And some people had gone and killed them all. And somebody had shot the last one. And yeah, I always thought what a really good thing it would be to, to actually bring something like that back. There was a project that attempted to breed the birds in captivity, and this ran through the 1970s and 1980s. And it was never truly successful. They never produced any birds, nothing to release. But I was able to go up and, and, and meet the people who are running that project. And of course, perhaps more importantly, to meet some bustards. And yeah, you know, they, you know, they all say don't meet your heroes or, or things like that. But having seen all the pictures and descriptions of the bustards, I then went up and saw them. And they were all they were meant to be, plus a good bit as well. Absolutely. So, so where was this that you went to see them? It was uh, not not far from the current home to me. It was in South Wiltshire, and it was actually based on um, a, a bit of MOD land um, at one of their sort of big research places. So it was all quite involved getting through the security to the gate to go up to these, these pens where the birds were held. But ultimately, that project wasn't successful, and the birds dispersed. I think mostly they went to a zoo, and they variously died in the end without reproducing. Um, but it was that that really, yeah, I caught the busted bug, as it were. <laughs> um, it was a bit of a, a chance meeting with someone else. Career-wise, I went off and did various things. I was in the army for a while and then did, I think, 12 years as a, as a police officer. But um, I was able to meet someone who reinspired sort of re-energised re me in, into doing something about mustards, um, really with the suggestion of this place in Russia 
uh, called Saratov, which I've never, never heard of, um, and said that the agriculture there destroyed considerable numbers of nests. Um, wouldn't it be great if someone could actually go and rescue those and do something positive with them? And then if you could get them back to England and back to Wiltshire, we would actually be starting a reintroduction or a restoration project further down the road than the previous project ever got. They never got to the point of releasing birds, of even having birds to release, but if you could get some of these. Yeah, and my, my thoughts were just, there's plenty of organisations in the UK that support birds and conservation and so on. Big government organisations and the big NGOs, the non-governmental organisations. And I thought, well, what I need to do is shout about this for a little bit, to perhaps commission a few bits of research, um, you know, show that it's been looked at and considered. And if we can show that it's a feasible operation, then then surely one of these big organisations will come along and, and pick up the torch and, and run with it and all will be well. And, yeah, governmental and non-governmental, they were pretty much all either hostile or very hostile to the whole idea. <laughs> um, everybody seemed to think it was utterly impossible. Everybody said you'd be better off, you know, the money should be spent on, on other species. And nobody really seemed to have a, a good word to say about it. And I suppose faced with that, I, I just dug my trench a little bit deeper and carried on doing a bit more. And the more opposition there was, the more I could see that the opposition really wasn't based on anything substantial at all. Um, and, and one thing to remember, I mean, certainly in the UK context, I mean, back in the, this was 1998, I formed the Great Bustard Group. Um, back at that time, the, the history of restorations and so on. Well, in the UK, we had had a very successful project with red kites. Um, which I've were imported that, yeah. from, I think, Norway and Spain, and, and they had really boomed across England. And there was a, a white-tailed sea eagle project in the north of Scotland. Well, the first sea eagle project didn't work, and this was a second project. And I think we would say the jury was still out. It wasn't clear that was really successful. And, and that was it. Um, whereas now, across England and within the UK, England has its own set of, of laws regarding reintroductions. But we've got white-tailed eagles, we've got ospreys, we've got the red kites, people are doing water voles and beavers, there's wildcat projects, there's pine martins, there's all manner of butterflies and things like that being moving around. And all of a sudden it's recognised as a, as, a, as a mainstream tool for restoring biodiversity. Back in the 90s, it was regarded as something for, for nutters, really. And it wasn't, it wasn't mainstream at all. So and you stepped right into that nutter hat. Just, just, just fit yeah, like a glove. Well. Fit like a glove, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair one. I'll take that, yeah. Um, but it was very much the case that the more people wanted to stop it, the more determined I was to do it. And then the more work you do and the more of, you know, my own money and my wife's money and so on that we spent, the harder it was to take that step and just walk away and, and forget it. So by, yes, yeah, sort of by default, I suppose, Bustards just slowly took over more and more of my life and, until it became a, an absolutely full-time uh, 
occupation and some would say obsession. Very cool. Uh, so I, I remember when I visited with you, uh, it was in 2014, and I've uh, read a little bit on your website. It sounds like you've, you had brought the first, uh, I can't remember if you started with eggs or juveniles, I think maybe with juveniles in about 2004. Uh, and it was kind of winding down at that point, and you were just transitioning to using Spanish birds or birds from Spain. Kind of go through the story of the uh, of how that you know what worked, what didn't, how did it all come about? The one of the big areas for consideration in any restoration or translocation is the the suitability of the stock. You need to make sure the stock is as good as it can be. And also that you're not going to have a detrimental impact on your donor population. You know, you could never justify creating a new population if you're going to destroy an existing one. The, let's say the perceived wisdom, the commonly held wisdom, um, was that the, the Spanish and Portuguese or the, the Iberian great bustards mm -hmm. were going to be rather genetically distinct from the rest of the worlds. Now, this is something I never subscribed to. Um, I couldn't see why it would be that way. But um, a Spanish academic who had published extensively on great bustards, I think at the time he had probably published about as much as everyone else put together, mm -hmm. had made a suggestion that the Pyrenees would have isolated their great bustards. Now, that didn't stack up to me. Little bustards cross the Pyrenees quite regularly, and we know great bustards do from time to time. And no other mountain range has blocked great bustards. And bustards are in, great bustards are from Morocco, and then we go across the Alps and the Urals, and the, um, I mean, right the way across to the Hindu Kush and to the far side of China. They always manage to get around mountain range. So why the Pyrenees would stop them, I don't know. But the UK licensing authorities were absolute. But once this suggestion had been made in a suitably revered peer-reviewed journal, it, even though it said it was just a suggestion, it then becomes cited by... I mean, quite literally, hundreds of people. It was just a stock thing. Everybody cited that as if it were fact. And it became fact. So Russia was the really only the suitable place. The smaller populations in Germany and Austria were receiving a great deal of um, conservation effort. I'm delighted to say they've been tremendously successful and their populations have just gone up enormously but at, back in the 90s they were still pretty small so they couldn't give us birds um but it was considered the russians possibly could and the the fact that the nests were destroyed by agriculture it really gave us if we didn't do anything if we didn't have this project the nests were all destroyed if we do something with them well it may work it may not but actually it's not going to be detrimental to that donor population exactly um, and yeah i mean it, it worked um i always sort of describe russia as being um, i think it's quite a difficult difficult place for russians to live um <laughs> let alone an englishman and an english police officer um and there was a lot of suspicions and so on with their various security agencies and so on but yeah we we managed to make it work the the egg rescue side went over a, a pretty extensive area and if we got a call from a farmer or something like that it could easily be four or so hours 
by the time we got there. Mm. So we were never sure which eggs were viable and which ones weren't. And the, the sort of the baseline with the Russians was that half of the chicks reared could come to, to England and the other half would stay in Russia, which we either okay. released into the wild or they went to um, breeding projects at Moscow Zoo and sure. so on. Um, and yeah, we so we brought them back as as chicks. The That phase of the project was with its successes. We released birds, we got them to survive. We had, um, I think within three years, um, the first eggs. Within five years, the first fertile eggs. And it's usually reckoned five years is when the males actually become fertile. Okay. But the numbers were low and the immediate post-release survival was low. Um, and I think, I mean, things were changing in Russia as well. And um, it did, I'd say as a country, it rather opened up and then it started to close back down again. And it was becoming more difficult as a Westerner working there and drew just good fortune on the timing we um, had an academic with a particularly promising PhD student and they were able to look at um, genetic samples I could obtain for all the European great busted populations okay but for the first time a study like this was going to include the specimens which are in the, the various the museums, but also the manor houses and the castles and so sure. on where people have shot them, of birds that we know were killed, certainly in England, but preferably in Wiltshire. And those specimens had a good provenance, that that was the bird that was killed on that estate or whatever. Okay. And, and that study showed, I suppose in the first instance, you'd say there was actually remarkably little difference between any of the great busted populations in Europe. Mm -hmm. But if, if the specific question is, which is the closest living population to the old English birds, the answer is Spain. Oh, okay. Um, so armed with that, I was able to go out to Spain. And yeah, I, I always remember the um, just the negativity of all the government um, employees and government agencies and so on for the project in the UK and yeah the, the Russians had their enthusiasts and the Spanish they just could not have been more helpful and this was dealing with the government of Castilla Leon and the regions in Spain really are quite independent Very cool. um, and also the government of Castilla Leon and then also the federal government in Madrid that dealt with the export and um, yeah just yeah what a great idea how could we help and um, somebody, who, somebody who really said, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. That's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, just, and there was, you know, there was absolutely nothing in it for them other than a lot of paperwork. Um, a big difference in, in Spain is we were actually able to go out and search for the nests. We had an early cutoff date. So if we found a nest, we would take all the eggs from it. Um, but we had to finish by, I think it was the 15th of May. And the idea being on that is it is widely understood. If great bustards lose eggs, they will lay a second clutch. If, if they lose, if they have chicks and lose them, they'll probably not bother again for the rest of the year. But the idea was we would take them, they would lay again. And by then we'd, we'd gone home. So we, we weren't having an impact on their population. So I would, would head out, um, yeah, with a, a team of volunteers. And, um, yeah, and perhaps my most, um, 
Uh, yeah, I'll say my most efficient members of staff, which are my dogs. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got two two Labradors and two Springer Spaniels. Um, we tried people walking in a line, people walking in a line with a rope sure. with bells on it. We had drones with thermal images and so on mm -hmm. on there. And they all work to a degree, but I'm, yeah, something of a traditionalist. Other people might say Luddite, but um, I was personally delighted that the, the, the most successful technology to use was a Mark I dog snout. Um, very nice. And, and that worked very well. So the, the eggs would be part through incubation. Mm -hmm. we, we would collect them. They would go straight into an incubator. And then with the help of uh, the big zoo in Madrid, the Madrid Zoo and Aquarium, we would get the relevant paperwork. And then it was a, a sort of a fast and comfortable car or as close as we could get to that and drive them all the way back up across Europe um, to one of our project partners in the UK who would complete the incubation for us. Mm -hmm. So cool. So you got eggs from Spain. Uh, what kind of numbers are we talking uh, on a good year or average year? How many, uh, how many eggs would you get back? How many of them would hatch? Um, so in terms of the total numbers, I think the license we had was um, the highest number was for 60. Um, but normally it was 20 to 20 to 30 eggs in a, in a year. Okay. Um, and the hatch rate was, was very good. I mean, for the, the early years, we used a, um, an organization called Bird World, which is a, a bird zoo collection quite close mm -hmm. to us. And in latter years, it's been the Cotswold Wildlife Park. It's just tremendous for me to have somewhere we can take the eggs. And I mean, incubation is, you know, some would say perhaps it's not rocket science, but to do it really well is, is quite involved. And to have someone else doing that to a high standard when I was still involved in logistics and back and forth to Spain and getting everything ready has just been a tremendous help. And I, yeah, I, I think there was always a, a small percentage of infertile eggs, sure. I don't know, two or three percent. Mm -hmm. um, and of the fertile eggs, um, yeah, I think we were about 90 94% hatch rate or something, which is, I think, good anyway. Probably and better than in nature, that, I would guess. And, but taking them pretty much north to south in Europe and so on, no, I yeah. think that was um, a, a tremendous result. I mean, perhaps it just means busted eggs are tough, but um, either way, it was, it was great to have such a, a good result. Tough old bustards. Very good. Uh, and so uh, you got the birds back and do you release them as little chicks? Or do you have a pen for them for a while? Or how does that all go? Well, the rearing of, of great busted chicks for release is, is quite an involved process. Um, I think nidifugus is the, the, the word that describes them once they hatch. Okay. The, the, the nest is barely worthy of the name. It's just a little scrape. But as, and as soon as the chicks hatch, they're off and they, they, they follow the female mum around. Now, mm -hmm. other than the act of mating and generally looking about the coolest bird in the world, the males play no further part in the process whatsoever. <laughs> the female does all the incubation and all the chick rearing. And the, the chicks are, are highly mobile. They, they can be found uh, a mile or two away from the nest wow. within you know, a few days. And they, they follow the female around. But for the first seven to five, five to seven days, something like that, mm -hmm. 
the female exclusively bill feeds them. She picks up mostly vegetation, but it includes the odd insect and things like mm-hmm. that as well, and gives them bill to bill with the with the chicks. Right. Now, once they start to, to grow and so on, they become able to feed themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but the female will still give them treats or particularly good bits. The chicks would stay with the female until, yeah, about Christmas, is it, or into the new year. Oh, wow, for a long time. And that's a long period of maternal care. Mm-hmm. Um, now, certainly, if we tried to replicate that length of care, I think we would have birds which are far too tame. They'd be too used to people. Yeah. They've got to make sure. their way sooner than that. Um, but we've always tried to do what we term isolation rearing. Um, but you can't really isolate yourself because you have to do this bill feeding and so right. on. So, well, the bill feeding, we just use a puppet. It's a, it's a hand glove puppet with a pair of tweezers, really, as a, as a bill, and you pick food up. And the chicks respond very well to that. But in terms of ourselves, I mean, for me and, and all my wonderful uh, volunteers and, and, and colleagues, we're never going to make me look like a bustard. That's not well, going to happen. You know, if you took your mustache and you twisted um, it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what we try and do is disguise our features as a human. Now, if you if you went if you saw a bird you had never seen before and were describing it to someone else, I mean the first thing you might do is the, the size. Well, we can't do a great deal about size, but the next one is probably color. Mm-hmm. So, looking at the the, the, the human color, and then second, third on from that, the shape, are we call it a dehumanization suit, not meant to make me look like a bustard but to stop me looking like a human. Okay. It's like a, a, a surplus, those sort of robes that the choir boys or whatever might, uh, mm-hmm. might wear. So it's a long flowing thing. It comes down, covers your ankles. Mm-hmm. So effectively, you don't have legs. Right. No identifiable legs. The wrists are big or almost join up with the waist with sort of pleats of cloth and so on. So you haven't mm-hmm. really got arms. Perhaps the most distinctive feature is it changes colour top and, uh, sorry, it changes colour back to front. Mm-hmm. Sort of like now, a bust. I could just see your shoulders, you can just see mine. Mm-hmm. I'll put a fair bit of money on you have a different colour top and bottom. I do. So do I. You, you get the odd business person in a suit mm-hmm. and you get soldiers and sailors that might be in a uniform. But on a generalized statement as a species we humans change color top and bottom Mm -hmm. the rare exceptions are one color i've never seen a person other than our dehumanization suits who's a different color back and front Mm -hmm. and that seemed a really strong identification feature to build in the suits and we also wear a very uh sort of distinctive um sun hat which is supposed to be 100% uh, reflective for ultraviolet light. And we know great busters can see in ultraviolet. So that's like a real torch shining from everybody. Okay. And, and they work. Uh, you can go out, you feed these chicks. They, they all sort of treat you as, as mum or at least a mother figure. Exercise is quite important for them. So when they're out in their runs, you walk them around. They all follow you. Um, if someone appears as a, a, a normal, recognisable human, they'll, they'll all want to disperse. They give the alarm call. They don't like it at all. 
And, and when the birds are released, we, we find they, they increase their distances, but they're still, particularly the males, even after a couple of years, they remember the suits and they'll let you get quite close. Um, if you're at a normal human attire, you won't get within more than a couple of hundred meters of them. So yeah, it does seem to be successful. And the actual release phase of the birds, we try and make it a very soft release. So this would happen somewhere perhaps towards the end of August. The, the chicks are quite big then and they're fully flighted mm -hmm. and they'll probably be fed twice a day. And we'll, we'll walk them out of the aviaries into the release area. Mm -hmm. And when they're out there, feed them. And normally for a couple of times, you can walk them around and then bring them back to their aviary. Mm -hmm. But you do that two or three times, and then they, I guess it's the teenage bit, you know, now nah, we don't want to go back home and we stay out late. And fine, so they just stay out. And they won't come back in after that. But we continue to feed them twice a day. And that probably goes on, it depends with individuals, but somewhere between... 10 days and two weeks. It's not long. Mm -hmm. And then the birds have hooked up with the other wild living birds around and the release phase is, is, is complete. Okay. So tell me about the, the topography or geography or whatever you want to call it, the landscape that you release them into. Wilshire, it, uh, you know, it's where, uh, it's where uh, Stonehenge is. It's kind of a big, uh, big flat sort of plains, is it not? Yeah, it's um, it's rolling rather than flat. Okay. Um, but you know, but gently, gently rolling. There are no steeply sided valleys or things mm -hmm. like that. The the greater part of um, Salisbury Plain is a military estate used, okay. used for, for training. There's a lot of artillery practice and so on that goes on. It surprises some people that such a place could be so good for wildlife. Yeah. Um, the, the reality is they have huge areas and if it's artillery, it tends to fall in one, little one spot. relatively yeah. small place. And of course, it, it really it's only the first one that's dangerous because if that <laughs> doesn't kill you, you're not going to be there when the rest of them all, all sure. start landing there. Um, and things like not the noise of, of the artillery or, or maybe of the tanks driving by or something like that really doesn't bother wildlife at all. People walking by would be a far, far greater disturbance. I think in the evolution of these animals, and it's, it's not just bustards, it's other birds and, and mammals as well, there's nothing that tells them that a main battle tank or a, or a heavy artillery shell is dangerous to them. It's just like thunder. or. And sure. I think you, you see the same thing in these, you know, David Attenborough-type documentaries in, in Africa. If there's a, a herd of gazelles or antelopes and so on, then... Mm -hmm. If you're in a Land Rover or a strike sure. minibus or whatever, all the prey animals just ignore you. Pretty and much. And the yeah. lions and such like don't attack you. If, if you got out as a recognisable human, a great number of the other animals would run away and the predators might, might come and attack you, yes. eat you. But if you stay in the vehicle, everything just thinks you're some sort of particularly peculiar rhinoceros with a, with a grumbling belly or something. They, they just ignore you. Um, a mobile blind, basically. So, sure. Yes. Yeah. They, they, it's, it's just something that they, they accept. Um, so what Great Bustards like really is, um, I was described as big sky country. 
they, they like a, a big wide vista. They don't like steeply folded bits. The species is much more plastic in its habitat requirements than a great people tried to tell me in the early years of the project. And the climate, you know, the, the, the weather conditions and the actual habitat you see them can really be very different if you're in Spain or Germany or Russia or Mongolia or, sure. or whatever. And I've seen them on the hottest days of the Spanish summer and some of the coldest days in the Russian winter. So there's not one particular bit you can say that's what bustards need. They're, they're quite adaptable. They don't like um, small fields and tall hedges. They okay. like a more open landscape. But one very key part to it, which I, I think is a message that perhaps hasn't really been understood by a lot of conservationists, is although they like this big landscape, they don't need to have it all controlled for them. As long as you give them small areas that will, will, are, are suitable, they need some winter food. And a crop like oilseed rape is, mm -hmm. is perfect for that. They need somewhere to breed. So a field of uh, lucerne or alfalfa, as you would sure. call it, um, can, can be tremendous for them. So you can, you can have this huge area of 100,000 acres or whatever scale you look at. But as long as you've got a little field here, a little patch of lucerne here and a bit of rape here, that can be enough for the great mustards. Okay, so they're a, a, a pretty much a generalist. They eat a little bit of a, a little bit of a you know animal matter and a whole bunch of plant matter, and they need big open spaces. But it can be a lot look a lot of different ways. I think I read that they do well in agricultural areas. Yes, a, a couple of myths that um, you know we we've had to deal with with the the project, and the first was that the great bustards are really a grassland species, and and they're not. They're they're far happier on arable farmland, or at least mixed mixed farmland. And of course, like all farmland birds, if the farming is too intensive, you know, too much chemical use and so on, it it's, can be very bad for the bustards. But a um, a sympathetic arable farm is is the perfect for the for, for the birds. So the other myth that we had to deal with was um, the degree to which they were dependent on invertebrates, hmm. and a lot of people thought you know, going back through the sort of the peer-reviewed literature, that great bustards were entirely dependent on invertebrates. Um, and they're just not. The vast bulk of what they eat is, is greenery. And I, I think some of this came from people did some early work on ana analysis of the feces and so on. Okay. And of course, little carapaces of um, invertebrates survive very well through the digestive system and, and are relatively easy and actually perhaps quite fun to identify. Whereas if it's greenery, it, it you know, the cells that come out the other end are much harder to, to identify and, and, and to sort of um, to classify. Um, but yeah, so I'm not saying vertebrates are of, of no consequence. They are, but they're, they're not the, um, they're not a species which is entirely dependent on a good crop of insects to be able to successfully rear chicks. Very cool. I'm going to interrupt a little bit. I bet some of my uh, listeners, maybe who aren't such avid birders, think bustard and buzzard kind of the same thing. I remember when I was a young birder, I thought, well, I thought they were just buzzard. I thought it was misspelled or something. Buzzards or you know, hawks or vultures, depending on which side of the ocean you're on. Uh, yeah. But bustards are these 
big, long-legged, kind of weird-looking birds that have a long neck uh, and are just really incredibly cool-looking. I remember seeing uh, 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 stuffed, I guess, for lack of taxidermy, prepared uh, great bustard. I think it was at your your home uh, that you'd yep. acquired from somewhere. And these are they stand the males what five six feet tall, something like that. Uh, pretty big anyway, and have these incredibly long whiskers that go out to the side. Uh, and I, you can understand why a, a English nobleman would love to have a couple of them stuffed in his, uh, in his uh, trophy room. Uh, and I think that's how they were extirpated, wasn't it? They were just basically hunted to extirpation in England? Yes, yeah, for sure. And a, and a significant number of them were actually, you know, in the last few were killed by what we would call the birders or the, the ornithologists of the day. I mean, back in Victorian times, if you were a geologist, you collected rocks. Sure. If you're an ornithologist, you collected birds. I mean, the eggs right. and, and the birds. Mm -hmm. And I think with any collection, probably the, the most desirable specimen to have is the last one. Sure. So when there was just a handful left, it was just like a spiral of let, destruction. Let, I don't have I don't have a bustard in my collection yet. I got to get out and get that last one before they're all yeah. gone. <laughs> but it's and the, the bustard family. Um, there are depending on how you split some of the species, but say 24, 25 species of bustards. Now, sadly, you have none in, in, in either of the Americas. North and South America right. have always been free from busters, and none, I guess, predictably, on either of the poles. Mm -hmm. um, but pretty much everywhere else has busters. Um, there, there's a, a great Indian bustard, an Arabian bustard, an Australian bustard. Um, and there's a handful of big ones, of which the great bustard is there. And, and the others are down to sort of, I suppose, chicken size type birds. Right. Um, and all very interesting, many beautiful to look at. Um, there's a bit of um, debate and mystery about, yeah, bustard. It's a, it's a strange word. And the usual answer is it, it derived from the French of outard. Okay. But that help, doesn't help really me. Help, what, help me. What does French outard even mean? I don't yeah, know. Yeah. No one seems to know. So it's not terribly <laughs> helpful to take it back that far. Okay. Uh, yeah, but it's um, busted is what they're known known as the whole the whole family. Um, and when I started working on bustards, everyone said the family of bustards was cl quite closely related to the cranes. Yeah, you so if you that. Sure. crane, but you you shorten the legs a bit and you really bolt them up, give them some mm -hmm. steroids or something, you know, so they were heavy. That's kind of where you are with the, the bigger bustards. But um, yeah, genetic research is something which. Yeah, in the last 20 odd years, there's been tremendous advances. And the, the current opinion, which seems to be authoritative, is that the whole bustard family fits between the flycatchers and the cuckoos, wow. which to me is completely bizarre and yeah. actually sort of almost fits in because so much with bustards is a bit odd and, and so on. But that's, <laughs> it's, that, that's what they tell me between okay. the cuckoos and the flycatchers. I would have so. guessed somewhere down by the chickens, but what do I know? <laughs> Yeah, all of our bird books are all messed up. If you take a 30-year-old uh, field identification guide that's done in taxonomic order and you compare it to one now, the loons used to be first and now the, the waterfowl are first. It's all like, what's going on with these books, you know? Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. DNA analysis has taken us a long ways in a different direction, I guess. Uh, so uh, where are you headed here? What's the population of uh, great bustards in, in, uh, in the Salisbury Plains area, or in, I guess in England now? And yeah. uh, what's, what's, uh, what do you see going forward? Um, so our population is uh, 100 birds. We're um, at always planned 2019 was the last year we brought eggs back from Spain and okay. we have no further plans to, to pursue that. We, we feel we have enough. Um, there are about a dozen or so individuals who we know are Russian. Okay. And of the remainder of the, the birds will be Spanish um, with maybe 30%, 30 individuals or so were UK wild bred, wild okay. right birds um and there's a, a percentage which we have to say we don't know so so uh, you're saying 30 of these were uh out of nests uh made in the in the wild so to speak by absolutely. imported birds so they were yeah. were uh you know uh first generation English wild birds. birds yes okay very good <laughs> yeah, maybe may, may russian and spanish parents sure. yeah exactly. and, and, and we know that some of those wild birds have gone on and bred themselves mm -hmm. so very cool um so what we're we're wanting to do now is to do everything we can to not just preserve but increase that rate of, of sure. reproduction um there we've done more and more habitat work we had a situation last year and this year where a significant number of females uh, chose to nest in one field of alfalfa. Mm. And, and this is a crop that's mown during the spring. Right. Now, we didn't have the funds to buy that crop off the farmer. Oh, bummer. It's, it's not a disaster from the busted point of view if eggs are broken or even mm -hmm. if chicks are killed right but the big danger is the females when they're incubating their eggs they sit so tightly and the big farm machinery now and it gets bigger and bigger but it also gets faster, faster. and faster sure. then it'll actually and it'll kill the female oh and and the whole busted reproductive model is based on a pretty low rate of reproduction but a high adult survivability mm -hmm. and Probably, I always say probably because I think a lot of the science and so on needs a pinch of salt when they give you answers to four decimal places and things like that. Sure. Reality is a little bit more woolly. But the, the real productive years for a female great bustard are probably between the ages of about eight and 16. Okay. That's when they're at their best. Okay. Um, so if you start losing adult females, that's a problem for the population. Sure. So we've been walking those fields, and if we find eggs, we take them. So we have rear and release to continue, okay. with, albeit with British hatched birds. Mm -hmm. But we've just in the, in the last week had some tremendously exciting news um, that we're, we're now considered eligible for some of the um, government-run uh, agri-environment schemes. Oh, wow. So we can come up and create habitat that, that we don't have to pay the farmer the government will okay. and it's um i mean yeah i i think you you've had different things going on in the last couple of years a huge one for us has been brexit and all mm -hmm. the yes. you know, what that good and bad and all the rest of it but i think one good thing that has enormous potential 
is uh, a bit of a change round in the way government subsidy payments go into to farming. Mm-hmm. And then if they do what they say they're going to do, which is always an if, but if yes. they do, it could be just tremendous for wildlife. And certainly this, the proposed systems are far more flexible and adaptable locally. So we, we think using these schemes, we will be able to protect a much greater area of good nesting habitat for the great bustards. And, and I suspect um, that these birds will learn. I mean, if, if you have a nice set of fields that don't get mowed and they have success, they'll probably go back there the next year. I mean, you, you would absolutely. Think. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's very, um, very much the case. There is a good deal of enthusiasm for having great bustards elsewhere in England. Um, and it is, it's very much England. You know, I don't think there are any records from Wales and the odd, and it really is just one or two right up on the English-Scottish border. Mm-hmm. But effectively, we're, we're talking English. Right. We, we've got the great bustard on our coat of arms of Wiltshire. Mm-hmm. But counties like Cambridge, Cambridgeshire, they've got two great bustards on, on theirs. And that whole area in, in, in eastern England of Cambridge, Norfolk and Suffolk always had a lot of great bustards and great enthusiasm for having having the birds restored there. Um, I think at the beginning of this, I was saying how tremendously supportive the Spanish have been. But with the best will in the world, we can't keep going back and sure. sort of helping ourselves to, yeah. to their rare wildlife. So a, a, a break on further projects is is, is really on, on stock. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do have some captive breeding projects oh, birds that okay. weren't fit for release so you right. two of them yes i did I, have you had stuff. any luck i i remember when i was there those two i think you said they had laid an egg one year or something that was infertile they they, they were still pretty pretty young i think um yeah that that male is now 16 oh, okay um uh, but we've had eggs and we've had eggs from our sort of captive breeding mm-hmm. partners but none of them have been fertile um they are notoriously difficult birds to breed in captivity but that said they're not impossible so one thing we're we're trying quite hard for now is to see if we can get funds together to actually make a a busted center and then that would be um uh, sorry, something for visitors and so on sure. and the whole education the busted is a fantastic flagship oh yeah species. Um, you know, one of the other special birds of Salisbury Plain is the corn bunting. Um, it's mm-hmm. got an incredibly high, it used to be common over much of England. It's now very rare, apart from on Salisbury Plain. And yeah, you can go into a school and go, hey, kids, great, look, it's corn bunting. You know, ew, it, it's about four inches long and it's brown. Or you go in and say, great bustards. And they all love the word bustard. So they're on sure. side before you start. And you show them how big it is and how much it yeah. is. It's a fantastic flagship yes. in that sense. So we'd For like sure. a, a visitor centre, but also somewhere that could actually host a proper setup for a captive breeding scheme. Yeah, and they need a little space for that. Um, yeah, but it would all be in aviaries. Right. It would be a breeding right. scheme in an aviary. So it doesn't need to be a landscape size thing it would mm-hmm. be you know smaller than a tennis court oh, okay so not that birds. big really okay um, cool. and another busted species you know are, are bred in captivity i know in, in the states you've got a tremendously successful cory busted 
project um, okay. started by the Smithsonian in, hmm. in, in Washington. So yeah, it's, it's doable. Um, we just need to get the funds together and make that happen. And, and then if we can produce more birds, they can be used to restore great bustards to other areas in, in England. So maybe if Jeff Bezos doesn't uh, work out going to Mars, maybe he'll uh, help you with your great bustards, you know? Well, yeah, that would be that would be great. And I know I say to elsewhere in England, but I'm, I'm quite involved at the moment trying to help a, a bustard restoration in Poland. I mean, they they only lost their great bustards in the early 1980s. OK, is, you know, relatively recently. Sure. And it would be great to see to see great bustards back there. Yeah. So you are obviously into great bustards. Are you a birder or a general birder? I, I know you said you grew up with a lot of interest in nature. Yeah, I was certainly as, as, as a youth, I would have been a birder. Mm -hmm. um, never a hardcore twitcher, but mm -hmm. I, I'd occasionally travel, certainly if it was reasonably local, um, and like to visit the bird observatories and so on. But more and more, I... I, I, I've sort of gone away from being a birder mm -hmm. um, and to the older term, perhaps bird watcher. Mm -hmm. um, I always run a risk of upsetting a huge number of people when I say this, but for an awful lot of them, bird watcher is the correct term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I they think you're right. Them. Yeah. Actually conserving them, restoring them, looking after them. A lot of them seem to think is someone else's job. Uh -huh. And there's an awful lot of people out there who spend a thousand pounds or a thousand dollars or whatever the sum might be sure. on a pair of binoculars, mm -hmm. but they've never actually spent that much conserving wildlife. And, um, and that's something I'd very much like to like to change. Um, the reality, the, the reality of doing something and making a difference yourself. Again, we, we get some, they're just tremendous photographs of great bustards. And they're, they're so big and impressive and photogenic sure. and so on. And don't get me wrong, we're enormously grateful for them. They're very helpful in our fundraising and so on. Mm -hmm. But there's, relatively speaking, a large number of people that want to inspire other people through their photography. And they're all about inspiring other people to do it and so on. And what we actually want is more people doing it. And less people a less inspiring, inspiring people. And a bit more mud on your boots and, and yeah. actually... I'd argue that pretty much any conservation or environmental challenge that we have, be it a tiny local problem, you know, a particular species in a particular mm -hmm. village, right. or the whole thing of global warming, mm -hmm. I would argue that we humans, we have an answer to it all. We may not know the best answer, but we have one answer. The only real question is who's going to pay for it. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. if you are talking about farmland birds and people saying, well, in my youth, these, this particular bird used to be really common and, and now it's so rare and so on. Sure. It, it doesn't take a great deal of money to actually either rent land off a farmer or just pay the farmer to, to do certain things. Mm -hmm. And, and individuals or just or small groups of people working together can make a tremendous difference. And if that small effort was replicated over counties or states and then on a national basis, it could be tremendously effective. Um, and um, yeah, and I'm I, I'm immensely proud of what 
we've done with the great bustards. But equally, from the small areas of land that, that we manage for the bustards and we fundraise and we've paid for, the, the other species that utilise and benefit from it are just tremendously impressive. And that could so easily be replicated. Um, an analogy, if you'll forgive me, with um, golfers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess a pair, a pair of golf, a, a set of golf clubs probably costs a whole somewhere bunch. around a binoculars and telescope. Yeah. And, and, and birders and golfers both tend to wear a fairly, you know, um, nice, nice stuff. I wear a clothes, so they have an yeah. outfit that they, they go with mm -hmm. on that. So those there are the similarities, the expenditure to get the equipment and the clothes. But thereafter, many golfers will pay... Um, somewhere between several hundred pounds or dollars to several thousand pounds a year to go somewhere where the environment has been created for their recreation, the golf mm -hmm. course. Right. An awful lot of birders expect that to be provided for them. Exactly. I think you're right. I mean, birders are, uh, as a whole, uh, not as generous as maybe duck hunters in America. You know, we, you know, there's the, the, in, in the U S we have the duck stamp program and uh, waterfowl. I, I forget the name waterfowl unlimited ducks, ducks unlimited, I think is the name of the organization. And they have preserved vast wetlands throughout the center of the country and up the coast, big, big uh, staging and wintering areas for waterfowl. And, and, you know, they shoot them, but by God, they pay for them. I mean, th they wouldn't be there if it weren't for them. Uh, and birders on the other hand, uh, you know, maybe some of us buy a duck stamp for 20 bucks a year, 25 bucks a year, but uh, haven't, haven't made uh, conservation of areas for our uh, wildfowl of choice, uh, you know, wild wild birds, I guess, of choice, uh, a prior priority in terms of our philanthropy. So uh, I think you're right in a lot of ways. I, uh, birders could definitely step up uh, to the plate a, a lot more from a conservation standpoint. A lot of us talk the talk more than walk the walk. Yeah, but having, having upset or offended <laughs> most of your audience on that, it, it is not intended to, to be an insult in any way. It's, you know, the idea is to you know, in, in, encourage people to get out there and, and, and do something. And, and it, it, there's no such thing as a modest conservation measure. No, it's I, conservation I, measure, it's good. You know. Yeah, uh, I hear you. I, I, I hear you where you're coming from. And I think you're uh, more right than wrong, whether we want to hear it or not. Uh, so uh, thanks so much. I, it's really exciting to hear from somebody who is passionate about what they do. And besides that, having some success uh, and with maybe one of the coolest birds in the world. So, I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Absolute pleasure. I always love talking about great bustards. And yeah, hopefully we'll get this um, whole COVID situation behind us and so on. And um, yeah, come on up and you'll be able to see the, you know, the big droves. The collective noun for great bustard is a drove. Oh, a so, drove, uh, not a flock. Okay. The, no, drove. not a flock of droves. So you'll be able to come up and see the big droves up on Salisbury Plain next time you're over. Well, I would like to do that. David, I always give my uh, uh, my guests a chance to uh, let people know how they can help, how they can reach out to uh, to you. So if somebody wanted to get a hold of you or wanted to help with this project, how would they do that? So the, the easiest way, our, our website is um, worldwide web, uh, greatbusted.org. Um, okay. And for, for those, and that will have the links on it to our various uh, Facebook, 
and Twitter and, and Instagram, sure. but they're all up there on, on greatbuster.org. Um, okay. Um, yeah, pl please do get in touch and any help or support that can be given, uh, hugely appreciated. Well, I really appreciate talking to you, David. I still have such fond memories. Kay was just, oh my goodness, she was gaga at this, uh, the birds and the feathers, the whole uh, process of going out to see these guys in this beautiful landscape. So that brings back a lot of fond memories, David. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully I'll be over your way and see you again. And the same uh, goes true. If you're uh, on the West Coast of the US, look me up. Thank you very much indeed. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, thanks for listening. I really enjoyed talking with David today. Brought back really fond memories of my visit to England and hearing him tell some of these stories in person. Uh, I have to say, uh, can you imagine uh, hanging out in Siberia, waiting for a phone call uh, from a farmer who accidentally mowed over uh, a nest of great bustards uh, and it was vacated and racing in, racing, usually on a train probably, uh, racing into the area, trying to gather those eggs uh, before they are no longer uh, able to be incubated, uh, incubating those eggs, hatching the young, getting them back to England from Siberia. Just a crazy story. Uh, and David's done that many times. Uh, so we had some really fun hearing those stories when we visited and really fun hearing them today. Uh, so thanks again to David for being on with me today. And uh, if you like stories about reintroduction of species, you can check out episode 101 with Kathleen Foley when we talked about the reintroduction of western bluebirds to San Juan Island. A little bit easier maybe to get to Joint Base Lewis McCord just down here in Tacoma and getting young from there, eggs from there, to up to San Juan Island than it is to get them from Siberia to England. But same idea, getting, getting a species from part of its native range to another and reintroducing them and going through all the roadblocks and difficulties of doing that. Cool stuff. Uh, I'm glad people are doing that uh, and hope that both projects turn out fabulously successful. But again, thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about the reintroduction of uh, great Bustards to England. Check out the blog post that I write on birdbanner.com to support each episode. I'll make sure I have links and information there that will get you right to any more information you want to learn about it. And again, thanks for listening. Make sure you leave a rating review on the podcast feed that you use. I love the feedback and it's really helpful. If you know of guests or topics you'd like addressed in future episodes, please reach out to me. There's a contact page on the website also where you can get a hold of me. Thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding, good day.